This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, this was a busy week with some news, uh, some big news, and I want to talk uh, a little bit about that. And joining us is also Rachel Evans from Bloomberg News. Rachel, what happened this week? Yeah, so we had a, a big new outbreak in the fee war, the race towards zero uh, on the uh, commission side of things this time from trading platforms. So Schwab came out and announced that it was going to cut to zero uh, commissions that it used to charge on trading stocks, ETFs and options. This prompted Schwab's uh, share price to fall almost 10%, but it didn't just take itself down there. It also took E-Trade, TD Ameritrade. And I think there's a lot of questions being asked about what this really means for uh, commissions uh, in trading platform so, land. So kind of the bloodbath. But this is good for me as a consumer, right, Eric? Yeah, I think for the small uh, investors, obviously saving, what, five, six bucks on a trade helps you. If you're bigger, that means a lot less, that that dollar amount. But per the companies falling, you know, um, we had some numbers here that uh, Schwab probably felt, felt the least because they only get 7% of their uh, revenue from these commissions. But TD and E-Trade are 36%, 17%. So it's more heavy on them. But really, to, to me, this is just all part of the Vanguard effect because one year ago, Vanguard announced all ETFs could be traded for free. And so I think that just um, people, you know, dealt with that for a while. And then you saw interactive brokers come out uh, like a week ago. And then you had um, Schwab and then TD Ameritrade. And now the two left standing are Fidelity and E-Trade. And everybody's wondering, you know, how quickly they will uh, follow suit. And when they do, you're basically all the dominoes have fallen. Um, but I look, I think it's good news. I think there's w- one concern is, is there anything really free? I think if they're going to sell your order flow, could it mean a slightly wider spread? And if that's a one bip extra in your spread, that could be three to six bucks anyway. So it, it might be a wash. Uh, and also, would this inc- um, encourage bad behavior? If you trade, uh, you know, out of your mind, um, you're probably going to lose money. So there's some, uh, you know, concerns and dangers here, but arguably probably a win for investors. So this wasn't the only news this week, though, because the SEC had a little bit of other news. Rachel, what was that? Yeah, so the SEC finally approved a more than decade in the making rule about exchange traded funds. Now, this basically allows ETFs to come to market without going through an onerous and sometimes expensive process of getting what used to be called exemptive relief. They can now come to market under the ETF rule, which should kind of streamline that process. They also made a few kind of tweaks around the edges, um, allowing fixed income to kind of have more of a, a hope because it, it now is allowed to use custom baskets. Uh, custom baskets, very, very technical term, basically means you don't necessarily have to do a pro rata slice of the fund that's going in or out of the ETF. Gives a bit more flexibility, allows the managers of these um, products to actually um, make a few more kind of decisions um, relating to their fund rather than just to the investor. 
Eric, how many more ETFs do you think we'll see because of this rule? So this is interesting. If this rule would come out five, 10 years ago, I think it would have immediately, you see the pop in new launches. I don't think we'll see that. I think that the market has matured and everybody wants, you know, 97% of the flows this year are going to products that are 20 basis points or less. That is, I think that's um, made a lot of people who have products in the pipeline more conservative and cautious about launching. I don't think saving whatever um, looks like it might save you a little money on the launch, uh, probably... It probably helps some people who are outsiders who might have been waiting, but um, I don't know if it's going to help it. I, maybe I'll be wrong. We'll see. But I'm, I, don't, I just think the market's brutality is what's going to trump the fact that it's now easier. And what do you think this does for fixed income ETFs like Rachel mentioned? I think it's good for them. I think the big winner here is active ETFs, though, because previously only passive and only some of them could do these flexible baskets. Um, here's a stat that um, my colleague in London, Tom, came out with, which is that only 6% of all ETFs pay capital gains. Um, but if you look, 20% of active ETFs pay capital gains. So this is probably going to help them lower that number. And especially a lot of them are small. And I think this is a big advantage for them. Um, you know, again, active has its own issues, but this certainly should help them. So to me, I think that the a bigger takeaway here from this rule is that it probably helps little areas on the fringe you know, certain little, and it probably is democratic because it seems like the winners overall are the smaller firms. So that's not all that we're going to talk about on this week's episode. Rachel, you also recently wrote an article for Bloomberg Markets Magazine about Dan McCabe, CEO of Presidian Investments. Who's Dan? He's actually right here next to us, but we'll hear from him in a second. <laughs> yeah, well, as you said, it has been a busy week. Yeah, this was the other thing that we were kind of working on um, this week. Basically, um, there's been a, a whole kind of uh, structure that's been in the making for, for more than a decade. Uh, you thought the ETF rule took a long time? Well, so has this. Uh, this is something that the SEC has been considering since, I believe, about 2009, uh, when Dan set up his company, Presidian. And basically, this structure is designed to allow active funds to come to market in an ETF wrapper without necessarily disclosing their holdings every day. That's something that's obviously, uh, you know, something that's very common for, um, you know, active managers, this kind of concern that they're going to have to disclose uh, their holdings uh, and, and yeah, they don't, don't necessarily want to. I, I don't to. want the world to see my secret sauce. Exactly. Yeah. You've got your intellectual property. You want to keep that hidden. But for the ETF structure, that is typically been the way you do it. You put your holdings out every night. So this is kind of a structure that, that has gone through the SEC process and seeks to give active managers a way to get into the market without necessarily giving away those goods. I want a job at the SEC as Seems like everything take, takes a decade there. Eric, <laughs> what, what? The financial crisis happened in the middle, to be fair. This is probably the biggest issue, especially for people in the ETF bubble. I think it's something we debate constantly because you have $12 trillion in active mutual funds. And a good portion of it is wondering, how can I take part in this, quote, new world of ETFs and index funds where all the money's going? Which, so, which for context, is $4 trillion. Which, well, no, seven. Seven. Seven now. and a half, yeah-ish. Jeez. So you have 12 over here, seven and a half here, but the seven and a half has come out of nowhere over the past 10 years. Um, and I think- A lot of it actually came out of the active side. Uh, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, th this is stolen from the right, active exactly. side. Although the active side has grown because of the market returns. Exactly. But long story short, the organic growth is going towards passive. This to me, I always picture this is like a bridge. Is this the bridge that will get us from one side to the other? And I think uh, there's been a couple attempts, but I'm excited to go into them here. On this episode of Trillions- Making sense of non-transparent, active ETFs. Dan, welcome to Trillions. Hey, thank you very much. So, Dan, where did this idea come from? 
This idea generated actually from a meeting I had with a company out in California back in 2007. They had asked us to see if we could figure out a way to uh, work embedded capital gains out of the fund. They had a small cap fund that frankly got to a point where they were not able to rebalance it because they were triggering so many capital gains. Uh, I went to a whiteboard with my partners. Uh, we spent, in a, it was actually on a weekend. So we actually took time away on the weekend, went to a whiteboard and drew this up. Um, interestingly enough, once we saw you know, what we had created, we knew what it was useful for. Uh, but to Rachel's point, it, it took us a decade uh, in order to be able to get the necessary approvals from the SEC to bring this. So this seems like a big deal because the thing that an ETF is known for is its transparency, right? Like at any moment in time, I can see what's happening here and what's inside of yeah, it. Yeah, I, so I would disagree. What's different about what you? I, w- I would disagree with that. I think that what ETFs are really known for, primarily, very few people know what to do with the transparency other than the professional audience. ETFs are known for real-time pricing and access, and I, and I think that's what we've we've allowed here. So we're giving actual pricing of the value of the securities in real time per second, updated on a midpoint of, of their worth, and then we're giving access through what entity we call an AP representative to create or redeem shares, the actual shares on a pro rata basis. So very similar to how the spider operates today. But what's inside? How do I know what I've got? Well, what you what you know is you have the corpus of the trust, right? You know exactly who the manager is. You know what he's trying to accomplish for you. And just like a mutual fund, you're going to get the same disclosures on a quarterly basis of, of what the actual holdings are. Um, but most importantly, you have full price transparency uh, every day. How was it dealing with the SEC for a decade? Uh, you know, to be fair to the SEC, uh, there was a lot of turnover. We'd start, we, we'd have great, we, what we thought were really good meetings, we'd get things moving along, and then uh, people may leave or, you know, the shoe may drop on, on a flash crash or something like that, and everything goes in a drawer for a number of years. So it was it was a little difficult. So before we get to some of the headwinds that I think this structure is going to face that are bigger, uh, just real quick, let's go into the price and the nav, which I think gets to some of the technical issues without getting too technical, I sure. guess, but... The reason ETFs work so well is the price you pay for it on the exchange usually is very close to the NAV. So it's almost like the you know that blue book value of a car being close to what you pay. It's a great thing, right? Nobody wants to pay something more than what it's and worth. And what's an AV for those that don't know? Net asset value. It's basically the value of the stocks or bonds in the ETF. So it's like the fair value, right? So you want to pay something close to the fair value. How can we ensure that in when something's hidden? Because how can you arbitrage it? If you don't, if the uh, people who are arbitraging don't know the underlying components every day, and that's what arbitrage essentially is a dirty sounding Wall Street word, but it's actually very effective in keeping the price in the NAV close. I would agree with exactly what you're saying. And what we've done is to update what you're calling the NAV or in in ETF terms, an indicative value. We've created a a methodology that's called a verified indicative value. So we're actually updating what I think is um, something that is you know, ancient, developed in 1993, has not updated. So that today's ETFs rely on a 15-second indicative value based on last sell. You know, th- that's not enough information to your point. So what we've done is take it next, next generation. We've taken it to a per-second indicative value on the actual holdings of the component securities, 
priced at midpoint. So you were eliminating stale stale prices in that in that process. Um, the other thing that is critical, again, and to your point, you need to have access to the underlying component securities in order to be able to to execute that arbitrage. Um, through the AP representative role that we've created here, you have the ability not only to know the value of the component securities, but to access the component securities. Not a proxy, not something that may correlate, but the actual fund itself. Rachel, what do you think this means for the industry? I think it means that there's a lot of uh, mutual fund managers out there that are looking at this very closely and wondering whether this is the the kind of salvation that they've been waiting for. The thing, right? Yeah. I mean, like you've been seeing, to, to Eric's point earlier, this huge amount of money coming out of active mutual funds and going into predominantly passive ETFs. But there's nothing really about the ETF structure per se that stops it from being used by active managers. It's just that that point about kind of not wanting to give up their secret source. So I think there's a, a lot of kind of like interest in how these... Um, structures kind of like do when they hit the market. I think the challenge is going to be sort of standing out because Dan is uh, sort of the only active non-transparent ETF to, to get approval um, at the moment. But there are a number of others that are seeking approval and that the SEC is kind of currently evaluating. Let's just go over those real quick, just for anyone uh, curious. So who is besides Presidian, what other uh, structures are, are in the running? Yeah, so at the SEC at the moment, there are, uh, I think, about six proposals that are currently seeking um, approval. So you've got one from T. Rowe Price, uh, Fidelity Investments, Nice is in there, a company called Blue Tractor, Invesco just filed. And there's a bunch of people, I'm missing one there, but there's a bunch of people out there that are kind of looking to, to get into the, to the market. They are primarily proposing something a little bit different uh, to what Dan's looking at. He mentioned there the AP representative, kind of having sort of this uh, kind of blind trust um, element, kind of standing in the middle that helps facilitate money going into the fund and coming out from the fund. These uh, other structures are primarily looking at what we call a, a proxy basket, which is basically kind of putting out some kind of maybe representative, maybe substitute, some kind of version of, of the holdings within that fund and allowing kind of market makers to see that and use that to make market. So there is a slightly different approach going on. What's your patent for, though, Dan? Well, we have about seven or eight issued patents uh, uh, around this, uh, around the AP representative role, uh, which we call trusted agent, uh, given our conversations with the SEC. Uh, the, the, and then on the indicative value processes as well, uh, we have a bunch of issued uh, intellectual property. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Let's go into the real, I think, what I, the real motivation here is the tax efficiency of ETS, which was honestly a happy accident. They did not really mean for that to be such a big benefit. But if you're in a taxable account, an ETF will, it defers the taxes, let's say, but it, it doesn't spit out capital gains. As the number I mentioned earlier, 6% of ETFs 
paid taxes last year. I think for mutual funds, it was more like 65%. And that's got to be very frustrating for the fund itself because ETFs get this, uh, quote, maybe unfair treatment or different treatment. And for the investors in the mutual fund who did nothing but sit there and they got a gain on their hands. So how confident are you that this structure will really um, minimize those capital gain distributions? Well, I think, yeah, to your point, I would agree with you that this is going to be a lot more efficient than any mutual fund out there. Mutual funds do have the ability to li- deliver out securities in kind. It's just that the structure itself doesn't uh, avail itself to that. Um, the ETF structure, the ETF wrapper, and this, what we've created here with active shares is an ETF, um, will will function Again, very similar to how the spider functions. We're going to hand out a pro rata slice of the basket to the trusted agent uh, of the AP who have the ability to uh, sell those securities and and therefore make that deliver out the low cost basis shares out of the fund to make it more tax efficient than today's mutual funds are. I, I, I would take umbrage with, with one point. I don't think it's just taxes. I think taxes are a very important component. I think that, that today's um, investors, younger investors, want access. They want access in real time and they want to know valuations in real time. You know, we all have our phones sitting here. We're all accustomed to it. We're on computers. You know, we don't want to wait until four o'clock to find out what what our securities are worth. So I think ETFs are, are, to your point, a bridge between you know the traditional fund today and the exchange-based model. And just to riff off that, like on the on the cost side, you know, it's interesting kind of when you look at sort of some of the costs inherent within ETFs and mutual funds. You do have that taxation issue, but also you have kind of issues about transfer agency. You know, the, the ETF isn't necessarily kind of paying the same amount to kind of record that the holders of the fund that a mutual fund would be. So that gets rid of one cost by by doing an ETF structure. Then you also have what's technically called twelve B one fees, which which kind of like are the marketing fees that most mutual funds do charge and most ETFs do not. Now there's kind of a question mark about how much that gets incorporated into an overall expense ratio or on these uh, ETFs. They are not likely to be as cheap as some of the, the cheapest passive funds because somebody is still out there picking stocks. But by removing some of those kind of inherent costs, you potentially have a way in which you know a mutual fund is able to run more efficient, efficiently and cheaper, and that should get passed on to the investor. Okay, this brings up a great point and one that I've yet to get an answer on. What will these cost? Because, you know, how do you price this thing so it's cheap enough to attract some of the cost-obsessed advisors who uh, are ETF users, but not too cheap where it upsets the existing mutual fund shareholders in the company's own fund? PIMCO did this thing where they priced it right in between the I class and the A class, which was you know maybe five, six bips away from each, and I, that seemed to do the trick. But they were also doing a fund that was slightly different than the mothership mutual fund. But largely speaking, what's your plan of attack there? You have to step back and understand what we at Presidian are, right? We're, we're, we're really not going to be the sponsor of the product, right? We're, we're the guys behind the scenes that have developed the structure. So we have license, and you're talking about the, the other competitors. The other competitors are all one-off models. We have licensed 14 of the largest active, active managers on the planet who are all coming to market with their own plans. So I think in the first quarter of this coming year, you're going to see a lot of new product come to market. And and from what I see from from these guys, and I'm not going to put it uh, – any, any names to this, is that if there are savings, they're going to want to pass some of those savings along to the client to make it more efficient for that client. And that's away from just the taxation to, to the point, removing the 12B1 fees and removing transfer agency costs that automatically inures to the benefit of the client. And then you're going to pick up also the, the efficiency and taxation that you don't have in the mutual fund. I'm not trying to sidestep that. I think that 
There are going to be guys that are. I'm different. waiting for it I'm, because <laughs> I'm not. Gonna... I'm not the guy who's going to tell J.P. Morgan how they should charge, right? So, so you're going to want these guys. Look, this, we're in a competitive world here, and I think they know it's a it. tricky situation. They know it. Yeah. But that said, this is a better mousetrap than anything they've had, ever had to avail themselves of before to compete with the passive industry that's had an advantage for 25 years. So now we're going to be able to put them on a level playing field. And, and they'll be able to go head-to-head head with the passive. So here's a question for you, though. There are about, correct me if I'm wrong, 250 transparent active ETFs. They account for less than 2% of the assets. They've been on the market for 10 years. Correct. And if you take fi- fixed income out of there, you get to really more bleak numbers, maybe like 0.4% of the market. The equity side's pretty much unloved. What would make you think someone would pay for non-trans? That's adding, So you're saying... If transparent active equity doesn't sell currently, what would non-transparent active equity do differently? Again, to be to be fair, if you look at the growth in active, even transparent index ETFs over the last couple, four years, it's four hundred percent. So, so it's not like they're not growing. The but specifically, Although the numbers are small. Relative the numbers are to, yeah, m- right, m- right, yeah, very small for a good reason. Because if I actually have intellectual property, I'm not going to bring my intellectual property to some place that it be, can be copied and then mimicked uh, by somebody else a lot cheaper than it costs <laughs> me to develop <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so if you have your best fund managers out there, you're you were never going to come to market in a vehicle that where you were forced to give away your intellectual property. So, so I think now that they have that vehicle, to your point, we're going to see what happens over the next decade. Is it possible, though, that the fund managers are overestimating how much people actually care what they hold? Like if they just put their holdings out there. I mean, Bill Gross did it with Bond. He put, you know, and PIMCO continues to do it. Sure. Um, you know, is it really, does it really matter? It does. At this, you, yeah, you let me tell does. you why from a, tra- from a trading perspective. Besides maybe a big, gigantic, like Fidelity Contra Fund. Okay, that's so big you can front run it, probably make some money. But what about like the, anything lower than that? Does it really matter? It does. You're talking not only front running, free riding, right? Because I have the ability to free ride you. Now, bond portfolios are unique because nobody sitting at this table has the ability to trade baskets of bonds in real time. Right. It's about access. Equity is actually very easy to access on exchange. So if I show you what I'm doing in my equity portfolio, I can mimic that. I can go home on a spreadsheet and mimic that in, in 15 minutes. So I would say that it, it again, it, it is there are other things that can happen in an ETF that do not happen in a mutual fund. ETFs are two sided vehicles because you have the ability to both buy or sell these. If I can go out in an ETF, and as your example, you're fully transparent, I have the ability to go out and borrow those securities, and you're charging 50 basis points for that fund, and actually redeem the shares, and you're forced to give me the underlying component securities. I'm now long the underlying component securities, short the ETF, and I become the fund manager. So so there are a lot of things that you need to protect when you're trying to protect that intellectual property for that manager. How does the mutual fund industry feel about you now? Uh, frankly, most of the people we're talking to, uh, we ha- we're not really making, my partners and I aren't making outgoing phone calls to people. The traffic is incoming. So I can tell you yesterday, we just signed up another $50 billion asset manager. And oh. I'm not going to tell you that. Let's break it right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but the, I, I guess the-, well, can, the can, I, can I list some that, are, that you have? Yeah, go ahead. Just let me know if any of these are wrong. There's some big boys on here. Uh, J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, Nationwide, uh, Gamco, American Century, Gabelli, Columbia Threadneedle, Nuveen. Goldman Sachs as well. They're on there. Goldman Sachs. Heard of, I've heard a few of these. You heard of them? Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple, there's <laughs> a couple names that aren't on there, but yes. 
uh, you know, those are all people that have license and and that should be telling to you. And these are incoming phone calls. These are not us going out and actively pushing this. They understand the value of exactly what we've created here. I would point out, though, that there is a difference between uh, licensing and launching. So I think that's kind of like worth bearing in mind. And there was kind of like a, an interesting um, sort of development on that uh, last week where Invesco, which I believe had licensed uh, the model um, a long time ago, uh, they kind of came out with um, their own model um, that they're now filing with the SEC to, to try and get approval. So I think it'll be very interesting to kind of see how many of these kind of like put their money where their mouth is. Like if they all want to sit back and see how these work, then no one's going to be the first mover. So American Century has some filings out there. Gamco has some filings out there. Be interesting to see kind of like when those come to market, whether others sort of follow. And like, like, let's just oh, just, ahead, just quickly. Uh, we never license to Invesco. No, okay. So, so to the point, yes, there are competitive structures out there, but um, you know, we, we think that we have the right mousetrap, and I think it's pretty telling. Yeah, you know, the people have chosen this structure. Here's the bigger, gigantic issue you're facing, in my opinion, which is that you know, if you look at the numbers, right, past couple of years, a trillion out of discretionary equity. Bond managers doing okay, but let's just look at stock pickers, a trillion out. A trillion has gone into ETFs and index funds passive, and then maybe 30% of that smart beta, right? Which is, we'll solve rules-based index fund. I guess my question is, a lot of that is because they look at the reports of index versus active, and they see that like two-thirds of managers can't beat their benchmark on the equity side. And then if the ones that do can't persist. And that's really some rough sentiment that seems to be spreading. Can you overcome that? Or is that not a concern because you think there's enough fans out there of active, despite all that, that really just want it in a better structure. I think that to your, again, to your point, there are certain managers out there who perform very, very well. And there are other managers who do not perform very well. I think that the, um, this vehicle is going to enhance all the managers. So you're, they're going to pick up efficiency. So when you're trying to compare a guy to a benchmark and you say, hey, he's missing his benchmark, but he's got an embedded He's starting 50 basis points behind the, behind the curve. So if I can move him up and let them start at the same point, let's see what happens going forward. Um, I, I personally think that there are a lot of managers out there, active managers, that I would like to have access to. Um, you know, we're mentioning some of these people today that the majority of uh, the United States do not have access to a Goldman uh, you know, account. Right. So so if you have that on exchange and, and you have um, their, their expertise um offered in an active shares ETF wrapper, it may be very interesting. And I, now, again, I'm not buying you, Dan McCabe. I get to buy the Goldman and the Goldman product because that's what the ETF would be. Let's unpack Goldman for a minute because I think this gets to another question, which is that Goldman has, you say active, active shares, right? Mm-hmm. They have something called active beta, which is their smart beta line. GSLC is a, one of the best-selling multi-factor ETFs. It's nine basis points of a cost. It um, looks like an active mutual fund in that it's pretty close to the benchmark, doesn't take huge risks. It's the Goldman name. It's rules-based, which is a little more popular. Um, is it possible that smart beta has just sucked up all the oxygen that discretionary thinks is there? I don't think so. I think that you're going to find that, to your point, to me, uh, smart beta is just active indexing, right? They're going to be guys, that, and, and it's rule-based. You know, in, in an active shares product, you can actually make determinations in real time, and it, you're not constrained by any rules. So I think that there are going to be guys out there that have the ability to add value in real time because of news events or whatever else may be happening. Yeah, 
I mean, I think the, the, the interesting thing when we do see uh, sort of some products start to launch, and particularly if we see some of the structures that are currently with the SEC also get approved, is kind of how that uh, sort of dynamic of competition then kind of plays out. You know, when I talk to investors, they point out that what they're really interested in is is not active shares per se. No offence, it's it's the strategies that could come through on on the active shares uh, intellectual property. So I think it's going to be interesting, you know, if we do have some of these other structures approved, and if they are also licensed, some of them we believe are going to be more proprietary. Some of them will be looking to, to license exactly kind of like what uh, which kind of um, asset managers choose to go with which structure because I think that more than the, the underlying structure will determine uh, you know who is buying what and could ultimately determine the success of these structures and you know we had uh, ropes and gray on ETFIQ okay sure every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Um, <laughs> shameless plug oh, shameless um, and they had a report out saying that you could convert a mutual fund to this new structure I knew you were gonna ask that question once you said ropes and gray <laughs> Um, you know, do you think we'll see some of that? Do you think, because this idea of putting out something that's a little cheaper than your mutual fund, I, I can see it getting messy with your current base. Whereas if you just switch them all over to this better vehicle, yeah, you're going to have to self-cannibalize a little bit, but you're probably going to do that anyway. Um, I could see that being a logical move for them. It's happening in Canada uh, more consistently, and it's happened in the U.S. First trusted that a couple times with a closed-end fund. So apparently it's legal. Do you think we'll see this? I absolutely do, do think we'll see this. Um, I don't know the time frame of that, but I can tell you that we, we've spoken to at least five or six clients that are looking at it. And I know of five or six different law firms other than Ropes and Gray that are also looking at, at this on behalf of clients. Um, I, you know, To your point, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I mean, if I have a, a mutual fund that uh, you know, potentially um, it, it, it's been maybe even a little bit stale, um, I can actually convert it over to an ETF model pick up more efficiencies, um, you know, remove the transfer agency costs and other things, uh, and get to scale immediately on the platforms. So I, I think that there are a lot of reasons guys are looking to do that. To that point, I, I do think that's, a, that's probably a great idea for them. I do wonder how many have the stomach. If you're not in the ETF Terradome dealing with Vanguard every day, it's, it's a rough place. And I'm not sure if you're used to just having this nice life, if you can do those kind of like, it's like cutting off your own hand. Um, I don't know how many have the stomach to do that. Well, I guess we'll see. So I want to go back to 2007 at a whiteboard, drawing a mousetrap, the better mousetrap. What changed from then to like actually what you've been able to get through at the SEC? Well, to be fair, I think the SEC wanted additional bells and whistles than we originally had put on it. And they also constrained the universe of securities that we could uh, use out of the gate. Um, but uh, frankly, it was really very, very similar to what we drew up uh, over a decade ago. Um, Frank, if it works, you know, what we always try to do when we're designing products is to make them as clean and simple as pro- possible. What we're talking about here, the all the proxy structures. Proxy is, you know, you know, um, I'm, I'm laughing because, you know, we recognize it just means it's not actually what the fund is. And if you're telling me I'm not going to have the right pricing, my pricing is going to be incorrect, and I'm going to tell you something that isn't the fund, but I want you to make an efficient market, you're, you're going to have a little bit of difficulty. We're giving you the actual price, and we're giving you access to the underlying fund for creation and redemption purposes. So, um, again, create something simple. Uh, like we did with GLD or currency shares over the years. And it'll work, and it'll work through every market environment. Dan McCabe, Presidium Investments, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Thank you very much. Rachel, thank you as always. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Rachel at Rachel Evans underscore NY. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.